This sermon, A Certain Victory at the River, was preached on Sunday, December 3rd by Pastor Tom Wilkins at Sovereign Grace Church, Tucson. Carl Truman, theologian and pastor, he says that the section of scripture we're about to read today includes all of the best elements that a seven-year-old boy loves to hear in a story. Wars, a fat guy, a sword, an assassin, irony, an exciting disembowelment, embarrassment, a secret message, trickery, a secret escape, the blast of a horn to the rallying of the warriors, victory, and poop. If you would stand with me and let's read God's holy word. If you would turn to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. Let's read God's Word together beginning in verse 12 through almost the end of that chapter. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself Amorites and Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera. The Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to, the, to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he went away. The people, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded, shh, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting on the throne in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade and he did not pull out the sword from his belly, and the dung came out. 
And Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he, sti- when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him to the hill country, from the hill country, and he was their leader. He said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, to the, your enemies, the Moabite, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. If you'd be seated and pray with me. Lord, this is your holy word. Every one of them. We must trust what you've given us in this story. It's your word. Holy Spirit, help us. Again, we ask for illumination from you. Help us see and hear and change us forever. Jesus, at the preaching of this account from the word, you be exalted. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Be exalted today in our gathering. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Wow. Thanks for this assignment. (laughs) We're going to approach today's text in three scenes. Normally we would have a, a summary or like one major thought that is emerging clearly from God's Word, and, and then our point or points or thoughts that we would be communicating and be driving that home. That would be expositional preaching, hearing what comes out of the Word and declaring what has come from the Word. Well, I get to safely approach this in what we'll call a scene, three scenes actually, Meaning we're going to look at the narrative in one scene, the following scene, and this last scene. Here they are, if you're taking notes. God's people in scene one turn away from him again. People of Israel are back at it again. Scene one. Scene two, God's utter contempt for his enemy. 
Scene two, God's utter contempt for his enemy. And finally, scene three, which is actually part of the narrative in scene two, but we'll see in this scene three a grander scene, God's victory for the ages. God's victory for the ages. Let's jump in. Scene one, the people of God have gone right back to it. God's people have turned away from him again. The opening words, it's actually repeated twice. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this is the Lord speaking. And then he describes what they did as evil in the sight of the Lord. Speaking of himself. Look what they have done again. That repeated cycle that we are now knowing begins to continue on and on through the book of Judges, turns again as we turn the page on God's deliverer right before Ehud is Othniel. And the last words in verse 11 set up this cycle again. Othniel has died. And the people of Israel turn to their sin against him again. This is their constant shame, their apostasy, their rebellion, their cosmic treason. R.C. Sproul will describe our sin as their cosmic treason against their holy God. And we will find a day God will not tolerate it. God strengthens their enemies in this text. Hear that very next statement in In the beginning of this cycle, they sin against him and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. This is curious. We had heard in the previous story that the Lord sells them to the enemy. In this case, he strengthens the enemy against them. And by the way, it's, it's purposeful the way it's worded. It's not just generally strengthening the enemy. Israel being God's strong people, and so he, now he turns and gives strength. There is actually a transfer of strength going on. A weakening of Israel, strengthening of his enemy for the purpose of discipline. God doesn't just generally strengthen the enemy, and now they can take over the people of Israel. No, he has on his mind the correction of his people. And so he weakens them, strengthens the enemy for the purpose to go and discipline them. That's what we see in their unrepentance. The Lord is so provoked, he will discipline them. He will not let their sin go on and on and on. Instead of selling them, he strengthens the enemy. The point is, God sovereignly strengthens Eglon for the purpose of afflicting his rebellious people. Here's the clue. So that they would turn back to him. We must see this from the beginning as well. He will not let them continue on in their sin. And in the face of his patience and kindness, which is very clear, Consider right now us and yourself as a sinner. But for Lord, is he not kind to us? Is he not patient with us in our sin? He is. He is, but he will not let us presume upon either his name and his holiness and his justice are at stake in the story. 
Therefore, his very nature must move to correct them. He must. He is compelled forward. He will not. He cannot in his nature let sin go unpunished. And by the way, we also have geography in our text. Not just those exciting moments, but we have a very place, real people, real time, but a geography that's going on. And I'm totally fine with you doing this. If you could track along with the message is go to the back of your Bible if you can. If you try Google, you're going to get lost for a little bit, but look at your Bible and look particularly at the nation of Israel is encamped around this section of where all of this is going on. Let's hear those words. He gathers himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, this king, and they take possession of the city of Palms. Now, you, you may already have a footnote taking you to what city of Palms is. This is really important to see in the text. Moab is the kingdom. If you looked at your map, if this is the Dead Sea, I'm going to try to give you the visual. I think visually, but the text is super visual. But if you can imagine the Dead Sea, and from your perspective, this is where Israel is. They are on the west side of the Dead Sea, a little in the north, but Israel together on the west side of the sea. And this king is from Moab, which is, if you're looking at the sea, in the southern area of on the other side of the Dead Sea. If you're going to get to this nation of Israel, you've got to go around the sea. And so he moves north, gathering the two kingdoms above him, and somehow convinces them to join him to go across the top of the Red Sea into the city of Palms. Do you know what the city of Palms is? Jericho. Look at your map. They're going to go across the Jordan River into the city of Jericho. And we have these evil kingdoms that God has now strengthened trekking across the face of the planet in this small area into, well, into his people's promised land. Oh, don't miss this. Joshua had led the people of Israel over the same section of the Jordan. Remember the story. They take the priests and give them the ark, and Joshua announces to the people of Israel, the priests are going to walk ahead. of Talk about a moving moment. We're about to go into war. And instead of in the movie Braveheart, the painted face guy riding back and forth, giving his really inexplicable speech, in this case, the Ark of the Covenant is going to be marched in front of the nation as they're being rallied into war right there at the shore on the east side, on the east side from your perspective, on the east side of the Jordan. The Ark is going to go before them and it's going to travel almost a half a mile ahead of them and it's going to hold back the armies for this purpose. They have to cross the Jordan during the flood stage. They cannot get across the river. But a miracle is going to occur. They're going to march that, they're going to march that um, Ark of the Covenant right down into the river. The river is going to stop flowing and begin to build up. And on dry ground, the nation of Israel is going to be released and set again. They're going to walk again right by this Ark of the Covenant, holding back the Jordan River. They are on their way to Jericho, the city of Palms. 
The very next scene is they arrive at Jericho. In an amazing miracle, they blast the horn and walk around the city for seven days, and the Lord brings down the walls of this fortress city. The nation of Israel run up over the rubble and through the open spaces into Jericho, and they take it, and their first victory in the promised land is Jericho. You have to see God's discipline is severe for his people. And he, in that sense, has brought them to the very place that they're, they're getting their promised land is now going to be the very place that their enemies, strengthened by him, are going to march against them. We know from history and from the text, Jericho is their forward operating base. And for 18 years from this section, this king and the Moabites will take over, rule, and plunder the nation of Israel in God's discipline. That victory that once was crossing of the Jordan River now becomes the Jordan River the very moment that their defeat is coming. That's scene one. God's people had turned away from him again. He disciplines them, and that discipline lasts for 18 years. They are plundered. All of their best is handed over to this king. I wish I had the time to go into this, but the reference to him being fat, and by the way, the able-bodied men that belong to him, there is a humorous, but it's, ir it's irony that kind of causes you to chuckle, but a nervous chuckle of like, oh my God, these people are well-fattened. They are provided for abundantly by everything that's been taken away from us. By God's grace, that's about to change. And the scene changes when we get to verse 15. Verse 15 through 29 is where we're going to be camping. There is a lot of text. I'm going to get to revisit some of this, but you remember hearing the story. I think it's safe when we get to this point and the content that's involved. This is when we hear coming over the loudspeaker, the captain is turned on, the fasten the seatbelt sign, all tray tables and seat backs in their upright position. The flight is about to get bumpy. And there's a number of reasons the flight is going to get bumpy. What we're hearing and what we have heard causes us to begin to wonder, what is God doing? God's contempt for the enemy now advances in his deliverer, Ehud. Now, if you're paying attention, you're like, wait a minute. The Lord is the one that has strengthened this evil nation, these evil nations against Israel. And the Lord now turns on that nation in contempt. Oh, remember, this is wartime. But remember, it's going to be hard to say it, but I'll try to say it like this. Hard meaning it's hard to explain because we are so finite. We're the creature. This is sovereign, God's sovereign rule over his creation at work. And everyone involved in what's going on are sinners. And he has the prerogative in his sovereignty to give judgment and to pass judgment and wrath upon whom he chooses because it is just. He also, we know in his providence, he will enable for a season he will enable the enemy. It's explicit in the text. 
Now we're bumping up against the nature of God that's hard to understand. But what we do know is what is revealed. He holds contempt of all sin. He's moving to discipline and correct his people as he pours out contempt now on and righteously on this evil nation who deserved his wrath long ago in their idolatry anyway. Scene 2 introduces these two new characters, Ehud, in more detail, and this king of Moab, Eglon, in more detail. Now we get to know both of these men much better. When we get to 15, the people of Israel cry out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up for them a deliverer. You have to see that scene in the New Testament where the wayward son has left, And the father is out on the road, still on his property in that sense, but on that road looking and longing for the return of his son. God is constantly leaning in for his people to turn back to him. He has called them by his name. Now look at what they're living in. He has called us by his name. Now look at what we're living in. He leans in and is ready to respond. And he does. They cry out to him and he does. And he raises up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, this Benjamite. Look with me at the text. It calls him, you want to know who he is? Well, we get he's a Benjamite and he's left-handed. It's important. Interestingly enough, he's left-handed. And he's also the guy in God's providence that has been granted, and we understand a little bit better, this role of being the very personal deliverer of this offering to this pagan king, this tribute to this king. He's a Benjamite. And if you are an Israelite, you're like, yeah, he's not really from a great area. His tribe is the least in this season, seemingly the worst. We'll know when we get to the end or getting closer to the end of Judges, the Benjamites are now infighting with the rest of Israel. It gets so bad, they're now turning on one another. It is awful. He's the Benjamite. And he's also a left-handed man. If you look at the commentators on this, it literally, if you look at the original languages, it means that his right arm is bound. That's curious biblically. Normally that would be your right arm is the strong arm of the warrior. We know that biblically. We also know that when the Lord says, and he will extend his right hand, his right arm to us, his favor It's a beautiful metaphor in the scripture. And it's going to be hard for us if you're left-handed this morning. This is not a diss on you. It's metaphorically being used. But in that same context later, the Benjamites, there's 700 left-handed men who are literally like snipers with a slingshot. And what we know from history, these left-handed men are uniquely trained for hand-to-hand combat. Imagine all the training, it's all, all right-handers against one another. You throw in a bunch of skilled left-handers, they'll lay waste quick. You don't know how to fight them. You know that from the boxing ring. Throw in a left-hander. If you've not practiced against the left blow, you're not going to last long. He's a left-handed man. And also this tribute. This is actually not a significant role to be. I mean, really, you've got the warriors, armor-bearing guys, the tough guys, And then you have the guy carrying, in this case, or leading the group of people, because this is a significant gift to this king, a grain offering the tribute. It's a curious story, but we now understand him a little bit better. In this 
um, orchestrating of God's in his providence in verse 17 of him being the tribute bearer, it gives him direct access to this king. And he actually is before this king twice that we can see. And there's this interesting, and there are bookends actually in the text. Like, that's weird. If you look at, I'm going to look at my notes, make sure I get it. Verse 19 and 26. Um, Ehud himself, all his attendants, the people he was with, they all continue on out of the city. But Ehud, when they get to this place of idols, it's a border section. It's marked by idols. You're in a pagan world. And you get to that section. And then if you go down again, you see them that he now leaves and goes past the idols. Actually, in the original language, is both. He is doing, he, it's like you get to the border, it's like, oh, great, we safely got through. And then he turns around at the border and comes back. But his nature is revealed as being faithful to Yahweh because the language in describing both accounts is he is not for the idols. He turns back at the idols, but he turns in that sense away from the idols. And so it's this great picture of this man uniquely trained and gifted, but also he is uniquely, during this time, uniquely loyal to Yahweh. Ehud, what a great character in this scene. And now we see God's contempt for the enemy is being revealed in the stature and even in the very name of the king. Let's look at this just for a minute. There in verse 17. It is here that we see that the satire and the mockery and the coarse humor begins to emerge. Verse 17 is loaded with this stuff. No pun intended. But that's the nature of the way the text functions. There's irony after irony Satire after satire through everything. We get to touch on only a little bit. Eglon in verse 17, quote, was a very fat man. This carried with it that he was fattened by the indulgence and plunder of the riches of his oppression of the people. His name literally means, I would have asked for a name change as a kid, but his name literally means calf-like. Calf-like. Baby cow-like. And not forgetting that Ehud brought to this calf-like king a grain offering. Every Israelite, when they retell the story, is like, oh my gosh, this is the calf being fattened in the story. We cannot make this stuff up. Oh, I can't wait to see or experience or hear God's humor in heaven. But this part of his humor, while maybe it causes us to nervously laugh, should cause us to constantly be nervous. God's contempt for the enemy is not done. It's not just in his name. He's a fat man, and he's calf-like. And now bringing this offering to him is an assassin. Ehud has been, in God's providence, been made for this moment. This is part of the story that's riveting and shocking, both actually 
It's full of intrigue and God's, des uh, God's design is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is graphic in detail, isn't it? Yet from the onset, we must see that it's for this reason. The laughter and the irony, the coarse humor and the uncomfortableness that we're about to get to are purposefully revealing God's utter derision and mocking laughter that is made clear of these kings of this world. This scene begins to cause us to question God's character that we referred to earlier. Why send in an assassin who is, well, he's actually lying his way in. He's deceptive in his, actually, his mode. But this is God's holy and providential prerogative. It is just in a time of war, not just just in God's eyes, but it is certainly just. And it is he that we really need to understand is at work, not just these character and these men. So parents, be forewarned. This is where some of the questions are going to need to come out um, in the car ride home. Here, let's go through the narrative together. You can glance through the text if you want, but I've bolted it for uh, our benefit this morning. Ehud delivers the tribute. And he returns, um, uh, he returns to have a private conversation with the king. And he has a secret message for the king. This piques the king's interest, of course. All attendants, his attendants, Ehud's attendants, have been released out beyond the city. All the attendants are dismissed. When the king hears he's got a secret message, he literally uses the shh and tells them to leave the room. The meeting likely takes place at the rooftop privy where the king sat on what one of the commentators said, his throne. We call it the porcelain throne. This is likely what's going on. There is a little bit of debate, but you even know that in this uh, footnote of the ESV when it talks about the porch. But without exception, it's all under consideration of what's going on. Ehud delivers the secret message by way of his left hand, reaching for the concealed sword that he had made and driving it deep into the king's belly, thrusting upward, which is in every, almost every commentator, thrusting upward to sever the aorta, silencing the king and killing the king immediately. That's the graphic detail. Ehud leaves the sword in his belly and the dung comes out. Ehud leaves through another way. A lot of people, I, can't, I couldn't believe when I got to this, but there was even a graphic drawing about what this must or could have looked like. And one of the possibilities literally is after he has killed the king and the king lays in front of the commode, Ehud escapes, escapes through the commode. Well, we'll just leave that for your conversation at lunch. How's that? The king's servants return and wait, thinking that their king is not done in the restroom. We know that in the text. The door is locked after all. And so they wait and they wait and they wait until it's getting embarrassing. And when they finally enter in verse 25, hear the words. And there lay their Lord on the floor. I recently heard a story, and I got permission from Brett to tell this, that Brett 
being a good dad, knowing where we're going to be in the Word, is retelling the story for little Jack. Jack turns three here in just a little while. And uh, uh, Brett's word is he was seriously acting this out for for little Jack. And I'm sure it's in that moment of driving the sword and the poop coming out, Jack exclaims, Ew! If our response to the story is like a little three-year-old, ew, we get it. But if that's all our response, then we have missed what's happening in the text. There, on the floor, is their Lord dead. Psalm 2, 4, he sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is laughable, but it is a holy laughter from heaven, meaning you think you can continue on oppressing my people. You will not. You think you are big of yourself and proud. Continue on without impunity. You can't. There will be an end to your evil. You cannot continue on in evil. God's derision is actually against sin. It becomes personal to him because it is against his very nature and character. I'm the one who made you. And you're going to treat me in your thoughts and life like this? You cannot continue on is the message in his message continues on. And for you and I, we have to ask ourselves these questions. When we look, let's look together at Judges 28 through 29. And he said to them, follow me. Ehud says, follow me. For the Lord has given your enemies the Moabite into your hand. We have to see that God is the one that controls every nanosecond and every beat of every man's heart in this. And so they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. It did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped See the word, the fords of the Jordan. Those are the shallows of the river. Along the Jordan in this area are areas where the river even uh, will at times split up and go shallow. And that's where you're able to cross. These are strategic bridges, I guess you could call them, through the water across the Jordan. These are very important what's going on in the text, and you will see very important what's going on in redemptive history. It's strategic. They go and seize the fords. Imagine if you are the fleeing enemy. You realize, oh my gosh, the nation of Israel now has their strength back, and they're coming after us. Our king is gone, and they begin to run. Thousands of them, 10,000 people are running 
The whole basketball arena of them is flooding into the head, flooded towards these narrow escape paths across the river. But the Israelites are given the fords and they secure them and none of them escape. Every one of the warriors whom God holds contempt sheds his blood at this river. God holds absolute power Absolute sovereign power over all involved here. No sinner, no king gets past the holiness of our God. We now begin to understand better. This scene on the shores of the Jordan River reveals that one, that no one is able to escape the holy righteous anger of the Lord. No one. The blood in the shallows of the Jordan River ran thick that day. You've seen the scene in Saving Private Ryan. You've heard the stories of how the water washed back and forth at the seas there at Normandy. All along the beaches, all the men flooding across, their blood now washing back and forth. The blood in the shallows of the Jordan runs thick. If you were here this morning and you have not turned to God for repentance, God's contempt of your sin is real. If you're okay to just hear the story of God, wonder and marvel at this, you have to see He will hold you personally in His contempt if you will not turn to Him in salvation, for salvation. If you will not turn away from your sin and turn to Him, you will, you will, the Scriptures teach us, you will receive His utter final contempt. Believer, this morning, this has to rest yours and my attention. We cannot let this go. It's a yes, yes, Lord, you've taken out the enemy. But you have to remember it wasn't long before that why the enemy was oppressing us in the first place. We had turned against God. Our sin turns us against the Lord. He will not have it. Are you caught in any sin still? Sexual immorality, greed, Lying, covering it up. Where can we go to escape the gaze of the living God? Where can we go to escape the knowledge of the holy God? Where can we go? How fast can we run to escape the hound of heaven? Psalm 139 says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Do you need to repent Hear the words of Psalm 90, 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Maybe the issue for you is not this kind of hiding of sin. Maybe for you it's that fear of tomorrow. You see what's going on in the world. Maybe you find yourself in the clutches of fear when you see what's going on, the wars, the death, the immorality, the terror, the economies. Lord, how long? How long? I sat in a coffee shop this week, two women with a sign. Legal, let's make abortions legal and safe in Arizona. How long, Lord? You fear that we may get caught up in the wars themselves. You fear that we will get hit with a terror attack ourselves. You fear that this world of sin 
this contemptuous world of sin is coming for you. Maybe it's, maybe it's your well-being, your livelihood, and you feel that it may be taken from you quickly. God is not a spectator just watching all that's happening on the face of the planet. This scene is designed to arrest our attention, to get us to see who he is and who we are. But with all the worry, all the sin, but sinners, we are given hope. Church, be comforted. God's people in scene one did turn away from him. Scene two, God's contempt for his enemy is real and it's deep, it's certain, and it's swift at times. But scene three, God's certain victory for the ages is ours. This scene is also a future promise that's embedded in this victory at the fords of the Jordan River. From these same fords, from these same fords of the Jordan River, God's certain victory reverberates across the ages, across all of redemptive history. God's certain victory at the Jordan that day pointed to a day on the Jordan. Fast forward another millennia plus through salvation history and another deliverer will stand in the shallows of the Jordan River. The deliverer, Jesus, he will wade into these waters. He'll look John the Baptist in the face and there will be a knowing glance between those two men as John takes Jesus and dips him in the Jordan. Standing in the shallows of the Jordan River will be the very Son of God whom the Holy Spirit will descend on. Jesus is the Lamb of God standing in the shadows. We know that because the very next day after his baptism, John declares it so. Certain victory of all those who belong to Christ, belong to God, is secured in this grand deliverer who should, who, um, who stood in the shallows of the Jordan that very day of his baptism. The blood did run thick the day that Ehud and the warriors slaughtered the Moabs there, those, the Moabites there. But the blood will run thick again. But instead of it being of the sinners and of the kings under God's full derision, it will be the blood of our Savior being shed. Because Jesus isn't going to stay in the river. He's going to wade out of that river and become the very sin bearer that you and I desperately needed. Over the ages, the judges could not save us. The following kings will not save us. We're going to discover that we will ignore the prophets when they come. And 400 years of silence and God's seeming uninvolvement is not going to be enough to get our attention. But he will now as Jesus stands in the river, as he wades out of that river and as he moves towards the cross and sheds his blood for us. The blood will run thick, but it will be his. At 
The Lamb of God will make a way of salvation for His people. The Lamb of God will overcome the world. The Lamb of God will crush the enemy and all of His demons. The Lamb of God will get rid of our sin finally because He will finally pour out His unleashed wrath, but not on us. The Lamb of God will bear that for us. Oh, God's contempt on sin has ushered forth. But Christ has borne our sins on himself. And it's shocking, but it's sound doctrine. The Lord, instead of looking on us in derision, looks upon his son in that laughing, mocking moment because his son bears everything that we should receive. I mean, that was ours and we would receive his wrath for. All the sexual immorality, all the things that were on your mind when we went through that section, all of the contempt we should receive by God's grace placed on the Son of God. Altogether more when John the Baptist, the very next day after his baptism says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very thing that invites God's utter contempt on us. The Lamb of God has come. I'd love for you to go back in Mark and in John and read the account It is in the area of Bethany near the Jordan that Jesus makes his way there. It is right at the top of the Dead Sea. It is just east of Jericho. You know, there's a new forward operating base for us. And that is in a person. That is in Christ. He's in our ever living and breathing forever Savior. That forward operating base is in God from the Lamb of God, God will now finally rule over us. Jesus granted authority, granted all kingship over our lives. What a safe and good place to be. If I could have you stand, if I could have the band. Oh, even as I read a summary statement, it seems so insufficient. All our sin and the utter contempt of God is washed away by the deliverer Jesus in these waters of forgiveness. You know, at baptism, we are dying in Christ. We're being raised in Christ. It's a beautiful picture of our sin on us now being washed away in Christ. Pray with me as we realize that that day on the Jordan pointed us to that grand day where Christ was in the Jordan. Let's pray. 